good to see everybody. Hope everybody had a good Thanksgiving. Can you all hear me? Is the microphone working? Let's see. Can you hear me now? All right. Well, good to see everybody. I love this weather. I hope you all do too. As Mark mentioned, we are in the Gospel of John, chapter 7 of the book of John. And let me just take a minute and just kind of give you a, just a real quick thumbnail sketch of where we are, an overview of where we are in the book. Jesus has become very popular. He's done many miracles and he's very well known. And what Jesus has been doing is he's been doing a miracle and then using the miracle to create a teaching moment. Like in John chapter 5, the chapter began with him healing a man who had been paralyzed for almost 40 years, healing the paralytic. And he did it not on any day, but on the Sabbath. He chose that particular day, Saturday, which is the Sabbath under Hebrew law. He chose the Sabbath to do this miracle of healing the paralytic. And the reason he chose the Sabbath was to draw out the religious leaders. He used the Sabbath and healed on the Sabbath because he wanted to make a point. He knew the religious leaders who were very self-righteous, full of hypocrisy. He knew that they would be hopping mad, and they were. And so he says, I'm paraphrasing chapter 5, but he says, it's okay. It's okay that I healed on the Sabbath. God works on the Sabbath, so it's okay for me to work. I just did that for effect. <laughs> Jesus says in John chapter 5, when, the, when the, the Pharisees and the Sadducees and the, the religious leaders are upset with him because he healed, he had the audacity to heal a man who'd been paralyzed for almost 40 years and he did it on the Sabbath. They're angry and he says, it's okay that I healed on the Sabbath because God works on the Sabbath. And if it's okay for God to work on the Sabbath, it's okay for me to work on the Sabbath because I'm God. He equates himself with the Father. And since it's okay for God to work on the Sabbath, it's okay for Jesus to work on the Sabbath because he's saying, I am God. That was the teaching moment that he created by doing the miracle on, <clears throat> excuse me, on the Sabbath. And so the religious leaders respond as he knew they would with more anger and with a great appetite to kill him. Then in John chapter 6, the chapter begins with Jesus healing the five, or excuse me, feeding the 5,000. And as we've seen, the 5,000, <clears> excuse me, is just the, the ladies. It doesn't include the men and the, and the children. So the 5,000 figures, when you include the, the women and the children, it's, did I say that wrong? The 5,000 is just the men. The microphone's really got me messed up here. The 5,000 is just the men. And so when you add the, the ladies and the children, the 5,000 figure is probably more like a 10 to 20,000 figure. He feeds them supernaturally. The little boy gives him five loaves of bread and two pieces of fish, and he just, he just miraculously multiplies them. Because the, the, the scripture describes, the, the, the way the facts work is he's handing them to the disciples. It's not like the disciples multiply them and then hand them out. They just multiply in Jesus' hands, if I understand the text properly. And then the disciples come, they gather them, and then they distribute them to the thousands. Jesus starts John chapter 6 with that miracle. And then he uses that miracle to create a teaching moment. The teaching moment that he creates is he uses it to teach his bread of life sermon where he says... Eat my flesh and drink my blood. What? Scandal. Scandalous. And of course, the crowd perceives that. The religious leaders perceive that because he's teaching in the synagogue in Galilee, uh, in the synagogue in Capernaum in Galilee. They perceive that as cannibalism. Shocking. Of course, Jesus didn't mean that as cannibalism. He's, he was using that as graphic imagery to say in the same way you ate the bread and the fish, in the same way you trusted it to put it in your body. That's what we do with food, right? We trust it enough to put it inside of us. 
In the same way that you do that, you should trust me fully because I give you eternal life. And when you accept me fully, trust me wholly. Don't trust your works because your works are inadequate to satisfy God. Trust me fully. When you do that, like, 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 like you trust a meal when you put it in your body. That was the teaching moment where Jesus feeds the 5,000, then he teaches, I'm the bread of life. In other words, I'm the food that has come from heaven. Eat me. Consume me. Identify yourself with me. And in me, you will have life in the same way that bread and fish give you life for a little bit. And then you digest it and you're done with it. But the life that I give, the bread that I give, my person is life everlasting. That was the teaching that Jesus gave there with the Bread of Life sermon. So this is what's been happening. This is, this is kind of the, 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 the back story of what's going on in the book of John. We've got these miracles. Jesus has been using these miracles to create teaching moments. Sadly, in the same way that the religious leaders rejected his teaching that he is equal with God, as shown by him healing on the Sabbath, in the same way that they rejected it, the crowds rejected his teaching on the Bread of Life sermon, that he came to give eternal life. He, God in the flesh, came from heaven to offer us eternal life, and then he would return to heaven they rejected that as well because many in the crowd thought he was... They didn't like that graphic imagery. They didn't like Jesus' words. No, 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 Jesus. You can't talk like that. You can't use imagery like that. We don't like that. And so the end of John chapter 6 describes many of his followers leaving because they didn't want a biblical Messiah. They didn't want a Messiah that they had to submit to You see, we are taught by the world not to submit. You understand that? The world teaches you that you're the boss. The world teaches you that you are impressive. You're not. Nor am I. The only one who is impressive is God himself. And so we are called by the scripture to do what the world hates. We're called to submit. That's a word that we cringe at, but that's a word that God requires of us because here's the deal. He's God and we're not. It's as simple as that. You don't need any complex theological analysis to understand it. He is God and you are not. And so we are called, he calls me to submit to him. And he calls you to submit to him. But the crowd who received that free food, who had their bellies filled by the fish and the bread. They didn't want a Messiah like that who they would have to submit to. They wanted a political Messiah, and that's why John chapter 6 describes them as wanting to make Jesus king by force. We want somebody who's going to get rid of the Romans because we're living under the boot of the Romans, Roman oppression. We want a king who's going to get rid of that Roman yoke that is around our neck. They wanted to make him king by force. They didn't want to submit to him cross had to precede the crown, but they didn't want that. And so you have these miracles, which lead to teaching moments, but sadly for most in the crowd, whether they're religious leaders or average Joes, most of them, not all of them, but most of them reject the meaning of the miracles. They reject the teaching of Jesus. This is the context for our chapter today, John chapter Let's begin with verse 1. After these things, Jesus was walking in Galilee, for he was unwilling to walk in Judea because the Jews were seeking to kill him. Verse 1 here tells us that Jesus remained in Galilee after these things. That's the phrase, after these things. What are these things? These things are what the apostle just told us in the prior chapter. These things are Jesus feeding the 5,000 and Jesus preaching the Bread of Life sermon. After those things, Jesus remained in Galilee. He stayed there. And so if you're looking at a map, you see on the screen here that Galilee's in the north, 
this, this is the land of, of Israel at, at that time. Galilee's in the north. Judea is in the south. And Jesus remained in Galilee in the north. Remember, he's from Nazareth. And his kind of home base of operations is here at Capernaum on the, on the northwest coast of the Sea of Galilee. Here's Nazareth, Nazareth here, not far from it. And Judea is here in the south with the capital of the land of the Israelites, the land of the Jews, the capital here in Jerusalem. Jesus remains up in the north, and he does so because the Jews, it says, wanted to kill him. The Jews in Judea, the Jews in Jerusalem. Now when it says Jews, when the Apostle John uses the phrase Jews here, he's talking about the religious leaders. They're all Jews. Right? John, the Apostle John is a Jew. Jesus is a Jew. His audience is a Jew. They're all Jews, but not all of them wanted to kill Jesus. When the Apostle John uses the term Jews, he's speaking about a segment within the population of Israel. He's speaking specifically about the Jewish leadership, the Pharisees, the, the, the Sadducees, who made up that governing body. The, the, the governing body in Israel was, was called the Sanhedrin. And it's made up of, you might say, political parties, religious parties, the, the Pharisees and the Sadducees. That's who John is speaking of. He's speaking, he's using this term the same way he used it in John chapter 5, 18, where he said, For this reason, therefore, the Jews were seeking all the more to kill him, because he not only was breaking the Sabbath, and he healed the paralytic, but also was calling God his own father, making himself equal with God. When those nice people come to your door and they say that Jesus never claimed to be God, when I say the nice people, I mean the Jehovah's Witnesses. They're actually not that nice because they're trying to deceive you. But when they come to your door and they say that Jesus never claimed to be God, you need to know that that is patently false. It is deceptive. It is a lie. That's why the Jewish leadership wanted to kill him. Because he claimed to be God. Because he claimed equality with God. They didn't want to kill him because he was performing miracles. I mean, it's true. He performed a miracle on the Sabbath, and that got their, their, their anger up. But what really caused them to go after Jesus is because he equated himself with God, with the Father. John chapter 5, verse 18 Here's what's happening. The Jewish leadership is nursing something. Something deep inside them. They're keeping something safe and they nurse it and they feed it and they care for it. It's their hate. It's their anger. For the better part of 12 months, they've been feeding this internal appetite to kill Jesus. Because what we're seeing here is a situation where Jesus exposes their hypocrisy. He exposes their self-righteousness. Because the Jewish leadership, they weren't like, wow, man, that is great, Jesus. You healed this man who had been paralyzed for almost 40 years. Praise God, that's wonderful. There's none of that in John chapter 5. Why did you heal him on the Sabbath? That's the response. And so what Jesus does is he draws out he draws out the hypocrisy. He draws out the self-righteousness. They're angry because their tradition, that they were reinterpreting the Sabbath, it was never against the Sabbath to heal on the Sabbath. But he's drawing out their hypocrisy, and the people see it. The people see that the Pharisees couldn't care less about this man who's been healed, and instead, they're interested in their rules. So he exposes their self-righteousness. He exposes their hypocrisy. They really want to kill him. And there's been about 12 months since those events in John chapter 5. Basically what happened, what's happening is, end of John chapter 5, between the end of John chapter 5 and, and the beginning of John chapter 6, you've got about six months. Then you have John chapter 6. And between the end of John chapter 6 and the beginning of John chapter 7, you've got another six months, roughly. So it's about 12 months, about a year, since Jesus has last been in Jerusalem. But during that year, the Jewish leadership 
have maintained this appetite. They've fed and nursed their desire to murder a man named Jesus who is fully God and fully man. Keep reading in verse 2 of chapter 7. Now the feast of the Jews, the feast of booths, was near. There were three major festivals under the Mosaic law. Passover, Pentecost, and the Feast of Booths, also called the Feast of Tabernacles. Remember, tabernacle is just a fancy way of saying tent. So Passover, Pentecost, and Booths, or Tabernacles, the Feast of Tabernacles, those are the three major festivals. And the Feast of Tabernacles, sometimes called the Feast of Booths, sometimes called the Feast of Ingathering, happened around September or October. What they would do is they would build booths or, or tents out of branches, and you'd have a cloth around, and you'd have a tent. And you'd live in the tent for seven days. And that, that event of living in the tent was to commemorate what God had done for the Israelites in the Exodus generation, where he provided for them when they lived in tents in the wilderness. The Feast of, of Booths also was a time of thanksgiving. It was a time of thanksgiving because of the harvest. There was the harvest that, that was done at that time, a harvesting of crops. And so it's this great, great time of celebration. We, most of us live in cities, and so we've kind of lost the significance of harvest time. Harvest time was a big time in the ancient world in, in, a, in an agricultural society, right? Whether it's the harvest of the grapes or the harvest of the, of the, the wheat, the barley, it's a time of joy, it's a time of celebration, it's a time of prosperity, it's a time of money. You know, they, they, they didn't have dead presidents that they used to buy stuff with, right? Dollar bills. They, the, the, um, often, the, the, they used the, the crops and the produce as a time of celebration, and they would have coins. They, I mean, this time, in this era, they're using Roman coins. But the whole event of, of the harvest time is a time of celebration. And so that's what's happening in Jerusalem. All these pilgrims are coming to Jerusalem. It's a time of worship. It's a time of harvest. It's a time of celebration. It's a time of joy. The feast lasts seven days. You live in your tent for seven days, in your booth for seven days. And then on the eighth day, there's kind of a, a closing, a, a final ceremony. That's, that's the picture of what's happening here with this festival. Keep reading in verse 3. Therefore his brothers said to him, leave here and go into Judea so that your disciples, your disciples is another way of saying followers, so that your disciples or followers also may see your works, which you are doing. For no one does anything in secret when he himself seeks to be known publicly. If you do these things, show yourself to the world. For not even his brothers were believing in him. His brothers. Jesus had brothers and sisters. Half brothers and half sisters. You read about that in Mark 13 and Mark 6. Mary and Joseph had other children. If you want the names of Jesus' brothers, you look at Matthew 13, 55. James, Joseph, or you might say Joseph Jr. James, Joseph, Simon, Judas. Not Judas Iscariot. Judas was a common name. But the names of his half-brothers are James, Joseph, Simon, Judas. We don't know the names of his half-sisters. The reason I call them half is because Jesus was conceived and born of a virgin. It's the virgin birth, which we will celebrate in December, just a few weeks from now. Some say that Jesus didn't have any brothers and sisters. That's just not supported by the text. In fact, it's contrary to the text. The text is clear that Mary and Joseph had sexual relations as husband and wife do, and they had babies. Jesus was, of course, the first child of Mary, and he was born while Mary was a virgin, conceived as a virgin, uh, while she was a virgin and born as a virgin. These brothers, these half-brothers, don't believe in Jesus. This is what we're told here. I mean, they believe in his miracles. They believe that he does miracles. 
but they don't believe in the significance of the miracles. They don't believe in the meaning of the miracles. They don't believe that he is God in the flesh. They don't believe that he's the only way to the Father. This is an important point with respect to these unbelievers. You see, unbelievers come in all shapes and sizes. Not all unbelievers are antagonistic toward Jesus. In fact, some unbelievers like Jesus. In this case, they even love Jesus. These are his brothers. I don't think his brothers are dissing him here. I don't think they're disrespecting him. They're not talking trash. They're, they're not being sarcastic towards Jesus at all. They love him. They just don't believe that he's got in the flesh. I mean, come on, we played together. I mean, he's the older brother, but to them, he's a man who does amazing things, does cool miracles, but he's just a dude. He's just a man to them. Not every unbeliever is antagonistic towards Jesus. Some of them like them, even today, in the year 2022. Some of them even love Jesus. Not the way God commands us to love Jesus, which is by faith in Him. And you can't believe in Jesus. Now you hear people say, you must be born again. You must trust in Jesus. You must believe in Jesus. Well, I believe in God. People say, I believe in God, or I don't believe in God. Belief in the Scripture, the Greek word pistuo, doesn't mean I believe Jesus existed. It doesn't mean I believe God exists. That's not enough. You can't merely believe that there was a man who walked in Galilee 2,000 years ago who was a carpenter named Jesus and he died on the cross, poor guy, and he was, a, he was a nice guy, he taught cool things, he did interesting things. That's not enough. You must, the, the way the Greek word pistua means, you must trust in him. You must rely upon him. Who is he? He's the one who is fully God, fully man. This is what his half-brothers refuse to do. They don't believe in him with respect to that. They believe that he did interesting works, interesting miracles. But that's not enough. Everybody saw the miracles. How can you not believe that he healed the man who was lame for 40 years? Duh, they saw it. But they didn't believe that he was God in the flesh. They didn't believe that he was the only access to the Father. They didn't believe that the miracle revealed that he was God, was and is God incarnate. Unbelievers come in all different shapes and sizes. The only way to love Jesus, as God commands us to do, is to trust in him. And he is the one who is fully God, fully man. He is the one who paid for your sins on the cross. He is the one who is the only access to heaven. Not Buddha, not Muhammad, not your atheistic view that the culture sells you. But God in the flesh is the only access to heaven. The bro brothers of Jesus don't believe that. In verse 4, they say, if you do these things, show yourself to the world. Now, what you can do in Greek is you can, you can move the words around, you can structure the words so that you use different if clauses. You can have an if clause that really functions like a, like a if and it's true clause. Or you can have an if clause that functions like if and maybe it's true, maybe it's not. Or you can have an if clause that says, I wish this were true, but it's not. What we're seeing here is something called a first class, first class condition. It's a first class if clause. And what that means is you translate it, you can translate it like a so in verse 4, since you do these things, the brothers say, since you do these things, they believe that he does the miracle. If, and it's true, that you do these things, then do them in Judea. Do them in Jerusalem during the feast when everybody's going to be there. Everybody's going to see these miracles. We all know that your following has kind of evaporated a little bit, Jesus. That's what it says at the end of verse, at the end of chapter 6. Because People didn't like this idea, eat my flesh, drink my blood. Mm, I gotta go. I, 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 that imagery's too gross for me, Jesus. A lot of people left. A lot of his followers left at the end of chapter 6. 
Jesus says, I am the only access to heaven. I don't like that, Jesus. I'm leaving. So a lot of his followers left at the end of chapter 6. His, his half-brothers probably know that. So his half-brothers want to kind of revive his, his following. Well, Jesus, you got to go where the people are. Go up to Jerusalem in the feast and do some more miracles. I don't think his brothers are, are, are being critical of him. I think they want to help him because they love their brother. But they're unbelievers. They don't love Jesus in the way we are called to love him because they don't believe that he is God in the flesh, the only access to heaven. They make a perfectly valid argument from a human standpoint. But the Father's plan was different. The Father's plan was different. And so Jesus would show himself to the world at Jerusalem differently. He's going to show himself to the world at Jerusalem not by miracles, but by shame and judgment. Bearing your shame and your shame and your shame and my shame. That's how he would display himself to the world. And he would do that six months from these events here at the beginning of John chapter Seven. By the way, after the resurrection, two of Jesus' brothers did become believers. At least two, maybe more. We have the book of Jude where we read the benediction at the end of each service. We read the benediction. Actually, his name is not Jude, it's Judas. But after Judas Iscariot betrayed Jesus, that name didn't, wasn't that popular anymore, especially among Christians. And so the book of Jude is technically the book of Judas. But we call it Jude because we, because we want to be sure to distinguish Jesus, the author of the book of Jude, who is Jesus' half-brother, from Judas Iscariot. The book of James, one of Jesus' other half-brothers. So at least two of his half-brothers after the resurrection would in fact become believers, maybe even more than just those two. Keep reading in verse 6. So Jesus said to them, My time is not yet here, but your time is always opportune. What does he mean by my time is not yet here? He's used this phrase elsewhere, earlier in the book and later in the book. My time is not yet here. My hour is not yet here. His time or his hour means his glorification as Messiah, which would come in phases. His glorification as Messiah beginning with his suffering, then his crucifixion, then his resurrection, then his ascension from this planet to heaven, and then his session. Five phases of the glorification of Jesus the Christ, a man who sits with flesh and bones next to the majesty on high, waiting, waiting for the completion of this church age. And when the last Gentile walks through the doors of faith, then the church age is over. And that man, who is the only man who has walked through the gates of heaven with flesh and bone, new flesh, new bones, of course, resurrection body, that man will return and place his feet on this planet. You say, the second coming? You believe that Jesus is coming back? I remember I was in a meeting, this is years ago. We were in a big conference room on the 25th floor of a, of a, of a skyscraper in Houston, and, and there's like 20 of us in this, in this room, and, 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 and we're talking about some, some things that may or may not occur on, on a particular business deal, and somebody said, yeah, that's going to occur as soon as the second coming. And he meant it like, what a joke. That's the world's view of the second coming. Because the second coming involves a reckoning. And we just kind of, you know, the culture dismisses the idea of a reckoning. There is a reckoning for you and for me, for all of us. Now, for the children of God, for those who have accepted Christ, who is fully God, fully man, and trusted in him for the forgiveness of their sins and the receiving of eternal life, that reckoning is so weak. But for those who have rejected Christ, that reckoning is a reckoning of judgment and shame. And so, what we're seeing here in this phrase, 
my time, my time has not yet come, is his glorification, which happens in those five phases, the suffering, the crucifixion, the resurrection, the ascension, and the session, and the crucifixion is at the core of the glorification of Jesus Christ. The cross is the core of those five phases because without the cross, he can't go home. Without paying for the sins of the world, he cannot return to the heaven that he came from. Do you understand what was at risk in the hypostatic union? Do you understand what was at risk when God became a man to die for the sins of the world, to take your sins and my sins, to allow the Romans to spit on him and the Jews to spit on him and punch him and to not respond the way you and I would respond? Right? If I had that power, I would have vaporized those guys when they pierced the head with a crown of thorns. Dead, but not Jesus. As the prophet Isaiah said, as the sheep is silent before the executioner, he opened not his mouth because he loves you. Because he loves you. God loves you. You matter to God immensely. And so the cross is at the core of those five phases of the glorification of Jesus. This is what he means when he says, my time is not yet here. Jesus is on the Father's clock. He's on the Father's schedule. He submits not just all the events of his life, but the timing of each of the events of his life. He submits even the timing of when to do this, when to do that. He submits all of that to the Father, even though he is co-equal with the Father. It's just like we're told in the book of Ecclesiastes, right, Ecclesiastes 3, 1, there is an appointed time for everything, and there is a time for every event under heaven. The divine schedule, the divine clock, decreed six more months before Jesus would be crucified, and if Jesus went up the way his brothers wanted him to go up to Jerusalem with a bunch of fanfare, look at me, if he, if, if he went up in the fashion that his brothers wanted him to go up to Jerusalem, drawing a bunch of attention to himself to reestablish his following, then he would have been crucified prematurely. He would have been crucified before the Father's preordained time. And so Jesus says, my time is not yet here. Six months from then, on Palm Sunday, he would proceed in Jerusalem and draw the attention of the entire city. A huge buzz in the entire city on Palm Sunday when they lay the palm, when they laid the, the, the palm branches on the ground and they took their, their coats off and they put them on the ground and he rode in on the colt of a donkey. And then, just a matter of days later, he would be nailed to a tree. That's six months from now. That's not now. And so Jesus says, my time is not yet here. But you, on the other hand, your time is opportune. Your time is any time. You go up to the feast now. You go up to the feast later. That's up to you. You're not on the Father's clock because you're unbelievable. That's really what he's saying when he says your time is always opportune. It didn't really matter when the brothers departed to go to, to the Feast of Booths because they're not on the, on the Father's time schedule. Right? The unbeliever goes here, the unbeliever goes there, the unbeliever does this or that in total disregard for God. But the believer, the believer who has trusted in Christ for the forgiveness of her sins and the receiving of eternal life, the believer is now in God's plan. And now the believer has a clock, a divine clock, a divinely ordained set of events that happen that are designed for us, and they happen for us, we're to submit to them. But what we're seeing by this phrase, your time is always opportune, we're seeing a contrast between what would be for a believer and what would be for an unbeliever. Because an unbeliever, they go here, they, they go there, in disregard of God. Where we as believers are on a divine schedule. Guess what? Your schedule is short. Time is short. 
you may punch your time card tonight. I hope you don't. I mean, I hope you have many more years. But you may get your wooden pajamas, as one pastor described, your, your casket, tomorrow. Because the mortality rate among human beings is 100%. No exceptions. Nobody gets out of here alive. And so today is the day of salvation. Today is the day to submit, to trust in Christ for the forgiveness of your sins and the receiving of eternal life. Look at verse 7. The world cannot hate you, but it hates me. This is Jesus speaking to his brothers. Still. The world cannot hate you, but it hates me because I testify of it that its deeds are evil. Go up to the feast yourselves. I do not go up to this feast because my time has not yet fully come. The world didn't hate Jesus' brothers because they're aligned with the world. The world doesn't hate the unbeliever. The unbeliever's aligned with the world. It's all good. We're copacetic. Yeah, we're, we're of the same identity. Jesus is saying, the world doesn't hate you. But me, on the other hand, they despise me. And the religious leaders embody the world. The religious leaders embody the hate that the world has for Jesus. There's no risk for Jesus' brothers going up to Jerusalem. But Jesus going up to Jerusalem is full of risk for Jesus. Now, please don't think that Jesus, you know, the, the way Hollywood describes and portrays Jesus, please don't think that Jesus is some sort of helpless, hapless guy who's just kind of, kind of being led along. And, poor Jesus, poor Jesus. That's not the Jesus of the Bible. The Jesus of the Bible is in absolute control of all the events, even the crucifixion. He's moving events to make his way to the cross. He will do that in six months. Right now, it's not going to happen. And the reason it's not going to happen is because he's going to go up to Jerusalem in a way that is different than what his brothers want him to do. His brothers aren't thinking about how he's going to be crucified. Jesus is. And so Jesus is in total control Unlike his brothers, Jesus not only is not aligned with the world, but he is actively opposed to the world, so the world hates him for it. The light of the world is Jesus. And so as the light of the world, he convicts the world. He exposes the world's wickedness. He is holiness personified, and that convicts unrighteousness. It exposed the religious leaders hypocrisy and their self-righteousness and it exposes ours. It's not just them. It's not just them. It's me. It's you who Jesus convicts. Remember the prophet Isaiah? The prophet Isaiah, he's caught up in this vision in Isaiah chapter 6 and it's a vision of the Lord on his throne in great majesty with the, the, the train of his robe filling the temple and the seraphim are hovering over the throne. And Isaiah, you, 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 we've studied this many times before, but Isaiah says, Woe is me, for I am a man of unclean lips, and I live among a people of unclean lips. And my eyes have seen the Lord of the armies. He's terrified. He's terrified, not just that he's in the presence of Almighty God, because whenever you see God, you die. He's terrified because of the holiness of God. Because the holiness of God magnifies even the slightest of sins. It's not like Isaiah is a murderer. It's not like Isaiah is a bank robber. It's not like Isaiah is an adulterer. Woe is me, for I am a man of unclean lips, and I live among a people of unclean lips. Or Peter, right? The apostle Peter in the book of Luke when Jesus performs this miracle on the Sea of Galilee, Peter says, Leave me. Leave me, Lord. For I'm a sinful man. I can't be with you. Leave me. He's convicted by the presence of holiness. As we all are. But what happens is, for some of us, we say, eh, whatever. I don't want it. We don't do what the scripture calls us to do, which is submit. 
submit to the grace of God. Because God is not just a God of judgment and wrath and fury. To be sure, He is that. The wrath of God is described over 600 times in the Bible. You approach God thinking that He's some sort of soft, squishy guy at your great peril. He is a God of wrath and judgment and fury because He's righteous. To be sure, but he's also a God of love and mercy and grace. And so the only proper response to the conviction, being convicted by the presence of holiness, the only proper response is submission. Submission to the grace, to the largesse of his love. And that's what Peter did. And that's what Isaiah did. And that's what ultimately James and Jude would do But what is happening is that Jesus is describing the hate that the religious leaders have before him. They embody the world's antagonism against Jesus, so they want to kill him. But it's not time for that yet. Jesus tells his brothers to go up to the feast without him. He's not saying he's not going to go up to the feast at all. That's important. In verse 8, he's not saying, I'm not going up to the feast at all. In verse 8, he's saying, I'm not going to the feast. The the point of verse 8 is, I'm not going to the feast with you at this time. And the reason I say that is because Jesus is going to go up to the feast. He's not lying to his brothers. He's not deceiving his brothers. He's not a deceiver. He's sinless. His brothers understood him to mean that he's not going with them at this time. And the reason I say that is because They know Jesus follows the law. They know Jesus takes the law very seriously and follows the the Mosaic law. And the Mosaic law, Deuteronomy 16, verse 16, makes clear that all Jewish men are to go to Jerusalem at least three times a year. At least three times a year. For Passover, for Pentecost, and for the Feast of Booths. So they know that Jesus is going to follow the law and, and go to Jerusalem They just understand that he's not going with them at this time. Keep reading in verse 9. Having said these things to them, he stayed in Galilee. But when his brothers had gone up to the feast, then he himself also went up, not publicly, but as if in secret. Jesus delayed in Galilee for a while, and then according to the Father's timing, he went to Jerusalem quietly, not with any big fanfare, not with with any big hullabaloo, but quietly. His brothers wanted him to, to go with a, a blow the trumpet, da da I'm Jesus, I'm here. And Jesus just goes secretly, quietly. Not the way his brothers wanted him to go. Keep reading in verse 11. So the Jews were seeking him at the feast and were saying, where is he? The Jews here, again, are the religious leaders. They were assuming that Jesus would be there at the feast. They're looking for him. They're looking for him to eliminate him, to kill him. And so this phrase, pu estin ekenas, in the Greek, pu estin ekenas, it means, where is this one? It's got an, an ominous tone to it. It doesn't say pu estin yesu, where is Jesus? Pu estin ekenas, this one. Where is this one? They want him to be there because they want to kill him. They're becoming increasingly hostile to Jesus, and the hostility is growing not just in the, the, the maybe a core of the religious leaders, but it's growing among the religious leaders. Keep reading in verse 12. There was much grumbling among the crowds concerning him. Some were saying he's a good man, and others were saying no, on the contrary. He leads the people astray. Yet no one was speaking openly of him for fear of the Jews. So the crowd's divided, right? You've got a division in the crowd. Some say he's a good man. Some say he's a deceiver. They were arguing really about his character. He's either a poser or he's the real deal. And this argument, whichever side of the argument you were on, whichever side of the fence you were on, you argued in secret, not out loud. Right? We have the First Amendment in this nation. And so the First Amendment, because we didn't like what King George did to us, the First Amendment allows us to 
express grievances about the government. We can say whatever we want about the government for now. Well, they didn't have a First Amendment back then. And so, since the religious leaders, which is the government of Israel at that time, the Sanhedrin, the governing body, since they view Jesus as their enemy, they want to kill Jesus, no matter which side of the fence you were on, whether you thought Jesus was a, was a deceiver, a poser, or you thought he was the real deal, here at the feast, you argue in secret. Because you might be... If they even hear you mention Yesu, the, the, the Greek name, that's, that, that's, that's the, the Greek name for, for Jesus, or Yeshua, in Hebrew, they, they even hear you mention the name, they may think that you're aligned with him. So even the crowd, the, the crowd who are arguing about his character, whether, whether you, you were on one side or the other, you, you made that argument in secret. This is how aggressive and how much animosity there was that the religious leaders had against Jesus. Keep reading in verse 14. But when it was now the midst of the feast, Jesus went up into the temple and began to teach. The Jews then were astonished saying, how has this man become learned, having never been educated? The midst of the feast is the fourth day of the feast. The feast is seven days, plus on the eighth day, there's a, there's a closing ceremony. So we're talking about the fourth day of this period of feasting. That was the Father's appointed time for Jesus to make himself known to the crowd. So he goes to the most public place in Jerusalem. He goes to the temple and he opens his mouth and his words, his, the words that proceed from his lips are astonishing. The words of Jesus make the crowd dumbfounded, amazed, because the word of God is alive and powerful and sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing as far as the division of soul and spirit of both joints and marrow, and is a critic of thoughts and intents of the heart, able to judge the thoughts and intentions of the heart. And so when Jesus opens his mouth, the people stare at him. Because his words create wonder. His words are spoken not as the Pharisees. His words are spoken with authority and insight and wisdom of the things of God and it creates amazement of the crowd because they say, well, where'd you get this education from? When they, when they say he's not educated, he's not learned, they don't mean you're a dummy. What they mean is you haven't been trained in the rabbinical schools. Right? The, the, the process, it's kind of like what they, used to, what they used to do with lawyers. But a hundred years ago, there was no bar exam. Lawyers would train under another lawyer for a year or two years or three years and then that lawyer would have to kind of vouch for you. We don't have that anymore. Now you, you take the bar exam. Same way with the Pharisees back then. You would train under a rabbi just like Paul who was a Pharisee before he, he became a Christian. He trained under Rabbi Gamaliel. Jesus hasn't trained under Rabbi X or Rabbi Y or Rabbi Z. And so they say, how can you have all this authority, all this spiritual wisdom, all this spiritual in insight without having been educated like the rest of us? So Jesus explains. Keep reading in verse 16. So Jesus answered and said to them, my teaching is not mine, but his who sent me. You see, what the rabbis would do very similar to what a lawyer does in, a, in a pleading before a court, is you cite authority. Right? You're going to make an argument. The rabbi is going to teach something. He cites another rabbi from 50 years earlier. That's his precedent. That's his authority. Well, what Jesus does is he doesn't cite any rabbis. He cites the Father. The Father is Jesus' precedent for his teaching. Jesus has such perfect intimacy with God because he is God. Remember, God is triune, God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. Three separate, distinct persons, but one God because they are so united in essence, all sharing the divine attributes, the character, the essence of God, eternality, love, omniscience, omnipotence, 
all of the, the divine characteristics. Jesus, God the Son, incarnate, has such intimacy with the Father that His teaching, the Father's teaching, is Jesus' teaching. Jesus knows it perfectly. Jesus' teaching is identical to the Father's teaching. John has already taught us this. John has already told us this in the prologue of the Gospel of John, John 1.18. The apostle said, No one has seen God at any time. The only begotten God, meaning the Lagos, is Jesus, is in the bosom of the Father. He has explained him. The word there for explain is where we get our English word exegete. Jesus exegetes the Father to us. The Father sent Jesus to reveal the Father to a hostile world. The world hates God, right? What is, what is the, 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 the reaction of the culture? How, how do they approach God? You don't exist. You don't exist. You're nothing. That's the ultimate hate. I hate you so, so much that, I don't, that, that I'm not even going to acknowledge your existence. That's the attitude of the world. I've got a good friend who's an atheist. Great guy. I love this guy. He's going to hell. And it hurts me. It hurts me. I've talked to him about the Lord, but he's not interested see him again, I'll tell him again. That's what atheism does. Atheism is an expression of hate of God. Atheism is an expression of disinterest in God. Hostility towards God. Keep reading in verse 17. Out the Bible. That doesn't happen. Oh, wait a second. That does happen. Yeah. You've got some believers today, some Christians today, who study the Bible so that people will say, he's so spiritual. He's so knowledgeable about Bible doctrine. Please don't misunderstand. I'm saying you should study the Bible. I'm saying you should know the doctrines of the Bible. I'm not disrespecting that at all. You should know those, but you should know those so that you submit to God, not so that you can get your pride stroked, not so that people will say, oh, wow, she's so spiritual. That's what the Pharisees were doing. They were giving glory to themselves. They wanted, they wanted people to praise them. They wanted people to say, wow, you're so godly because you know so much about the scriptures. See, here's what happened. Sinful humanity has this horrible knack at perverting every blessing of God. Every blessing of God. Sex, we pervert. Money, we pervert. Power, we pervert. We even pervert the study of the word of God. And all those things are from God. Sex is from God. Between a husband and a wife, a man and a woman, enjoy it. It's a blessing from God. Money, wealth, God gives it. Enjoy it. It's a blessing from God. But it's not your God. Power, God gives power. And God commands us to study the Word of God, to study the Scriptures, that we may know Him, that we may submit to Him. But don't pervert that into a method of self-aggrandizement. Don't pervert that into a method of promoting yourself, which many, many people do. What's happening in verse 18, as we get near to closing this morning, what's happening in verse 18 is that Jesus is contrasting himself with the religious leaders. He says, I am true, and there is no unrighteousness in me. He's answering the grumblers from verse 12 who say he deceived the people. He's a poser. He leads the people astray. He's answering that grumbling. And he's saying, I'm not a deceiver. I'm not untruthful. And the evidence of that is I don't seek my own glory. I seek the glory of the one who sent me, which is to say, the Father. Jesus says, I am he who is seeking the glory of the one who sent me. The Greek word there for glory is doxa. We sang this morning, as we sing Sunday mornings, the doxology, or doxology. Doxa in the Greek means praise, honor, prestige, glory. Very, very important word. And when it comes to doxa, 
when it comes to glory, the difference between Jesus and the religious leaders could not be more stark. In their pride, the religious leaders sought to glorify themselves, but as sinners, they didn't deserve glory. They deserved God's wrath and God's judgment and God's shame, like me and like you. Jesus, on the other hand, is God in the flesh, and so he deserves and is entitled to absolute glory, absolute honor, absolute praise. And he doesn't seek it. You see the irony? The religious leaders are entitled to nada, zero glory, and they crave it. Jesus is entitled to absolute glory. And, he, and instead, he says, I seek the glory of the one who sent me. I seek the glory of my equal, the Father. In John 8, 50, he says, I do not seek my glory. In John 8, 54, he says, if I glorify myself, my glory is nothing. And so you have this great contrast between the religious leaders and Jesus. That's what he's contrasting in our verse here in verse 18. We're not to crave the glory of men. We're not to crave the glory, the praise of men. We're to seek the glory of God. That is what his children do. That is what we are called to do, to seek God's glory. Unlike the religious leaders, Jesus neither sought nor accepted the glory of the world. Instead, he pursued the Father's glory, which is true glory. And by pursuing the Father's glory, Jesus sought praise for the Father and from the Father. Maybe you're here today and you don't know Jesus. Maybe you're here today and you're here without hope, without Christ, and without eternal life. We want you to know that God loves you. Let me say that again. God loves you. You matter to God immeasurably, though you are his enemy. You are the enemy of God, subject to his fierce wrath, because God can't just blow it off. You're a sinner by nature, as am I. We're all the enemies of God before we come to Christ. God can't say, well, you know what? I really like you, so it's all good. No, he's holy and he's righteous. If he did that, he would not be righteous. You are subject to God's judgment. You stand at the precipice. You are condemned to the lake of fire. I, don't, I didn't write the scripture. I'm just here to deliver a message. A message from my master. And it's a message of mercy. You are subject to his fierce wrath. And you will be cast into eternal condemnation and eternal judgment if you reject him. But he loves you. And he gave you a way out. He came in the flesh, God incarnate, to pay for your sins so that you may be reconciled, so that you would no longer be the enemy of God, but the daughter of God, the son of God, the child of God, as an act of faith. When the Philippian jailer said to the Apostle Paul, what must I do to be saved? The Apostle Paul didn't say, join this church and then give this money and don't do this and don't do that and do this and do that. He said one thing, which is actually not a work at all. And, and by the way, I'm not dissing joining a church. You shouldn't join a church. I'm not dissing giving money to a church. You should, you should give to, to return that to God, which is his in the first place, whether it's this church or whatever ministry. What the Apostle Paul said was, believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and thou shalt be saved. One thing. And in that thing, you give God all the praise, which is where it belongs. It's an act of faith. Today's the day. Today's the day of mercy. Today's the day of salvation. Don't wait. Because you may not have it tomorrow. Let's close in prayer. Father, we praise you. We praise you because you are an awesome God. A God who loves us. A God who sent your Son to die for us. Recognizing that the penalty for sin is death, as the writer of Hebrews said. 
We thank you that he died in our place. We thank you that he came to pay a debt he didn't owe because we owed a debt that we couldn't pay. We praise you for these things. We ask that you open our eyes to this truth, that we may become your children. If there's anyone here today who has not done that, we ask that you prick their soul, open their eyes, challenge them. And we make this prayer in the name of his majesty the King of kings and Lord of lords, Jesus Christ himself. Amen.